under the rule of Hitler, where they are welcomed nowhere in the world. Many of the Jews flee to Israel. And in 1948, surrounded by 100 million Arabs, there are 600,000 Jews. The prophet Isaiah said the nation would be reborn. They would become a nation in one day. And on May the 14th, 1948, God fulfilled that prophecy. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in that section of the book of Revelation that introduces us to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've noted that the horsemen are part of a series of judgments that God unleashes on the earth following the rapture of the church. Having looked at the rider on the white horse, who we noted is the Antichrist, and the rider on the red horse, which will bring wars unlike any ever before seen on earth, we're dealing this week with the rider on the black horse, who will unleash a time of famine and destitution. As we return to our study, Dr. Brogy picks back up at the wars that will encompass the earth, as nation upon nation will come against Israel, as is predicted by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. And we see that God is already setting the stage for this as Jews from all over the world, for various reasons, are returning to that nation state. When all the evangelical Christians are gone, who is going to push the government to be in favor of Israel? And then, of course, there's something that has happened, and I will document it for you in some subsequent weeks. There's a new wind that is happening in evangelical camps. I'm not talking about just those in Reformed theology who say the church is the new Israel, but in traditional evangelical camps that was in support of Israel. And so there's a new movement. They have an annual conference every year in Bethlehem, and it's a movement of Christians, so-called evangelical Christians, to go against Israel. And I will share with you some of the colleges, like Wheaton College, who support this conference and some of the evangelical seminaries that are now beginning to go against Israel. The wind is changing. Now, I don't know why America is not mentioned. Again, maybe because there's no evangelicals. Maybe because they have so many problems of their own in this day. Again, the restraining influence of the Spirit is gone. There'll be race wars. There'll be violence like the days of Noah across America. It might be that our military has all they can do just to maintain peace here. We do not know why America does not rush to defend Israel at this time. And we do know at the end of the seven years, America and all the nations will go specifically against Israel. Now remember, Ezekiel the prophet lives 600 years before Jesus ever steps out of heaven in human flesh. If you've read the prophet, the first 32 chapters describe the judgment that they are experiencing in his day. He is an exilic prophet. The Jewish people are away under judgment in Babylon, and he's describing what they are experiencing and why they are experiencing. But he gives them a sense of hope. He looks out into the latter days to the end of time. And so beginning in Ezekiel 33 through chapter 48, he describes, one, the physical regathering of Israel. Remember, we studied it last time, at least I briefly mentioned it, that when the Romans finally dealt with all the Jews, they made it illegal for a Hebrew person to set foot in the country they renamed Palestine after one of their enemies. 
And so for nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people were not there. But it was God's land that he gave to the Jewish people. In either case, in the late 19th century, in the 1890s, there was a movement of Orthodox Jews who said, we need to go back to our land. And in 1890, there's 25,000 Jews in Israel. Under the rule of Hitler, where they are welcomed nowhere in the world, many of the Jews flee to Israel. And in 1948, surrounded by 100 million Arabs, there are 600,000 Jews. The prophet Isaiah said the nation would be reborn. They would become a nation in one day. And on May the 14th, 1948, God fulfilled that prophecy, and he keeps bringing the Hebrew people back. There are 6.5 million people there today, and it's all in fulfillment of what Ezekiel writes, the regathering. But he also speaks, once they are physically regathered, they're also going to be spiritually renewed. And the promise of the new covenant that we experience today as born-again Christians will come to the people of Israel. Not to mention the population keeps growing. They're not like us. They have more children than we do as Americans. 174,000 new babies are born every year by the Hebrew people. God gathers them physically. He rejuvenates them spiritually. And this prophecy is amazing because 600 years before it is written, there is no formal alliance with any of these countries. Yet at the end of time, And we're already witnessing the alliances of these nations today. God is going to bring them into the Middle East. All right, that brings us to the third rider. You say, I thought you'd never get there. That's the introduction. Hmm. You say, we're going to be here all afternoon. Well, let's see how committed you are, right? All right, so we come now to the black horse of of destitution, the black horse of destitution. And it's marked by three things. First, it's a time marked by shortages. We read in verse 5, when he broke the third seal... I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third seal is broken and another rider makes his appearance. And this slide indicates we're still again in the first three and a half years. A black horse, the color black, both historically and biblically, is a color that is associated with mourning and with famine. Just as the white horse symbolizes peace, just as the red horse symbolizes blood and war, even so the black horse symbolizes mourning and the hunger that's associated with that mourning. How do I know that? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I can give you biblical examples. You might want to jot down a few. Jeremiah chapter 14. There the prophet said, That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They, meaning the gates, sit on the ground in mourning. Literally, the Hebrew roots, they, the gates, are black for the land. They're black for the land. That's a little odd rendering of the Hebrew, and we don't understand that idiom, but the people did in Jeremiah's day, so we tend to interpret it. Though the King James just literally translates it, doesn't Uh, it, it it literally interprets it, doesn't translate the idiom for you. 
And so the King James says that the gates are black onto the ground. It reads just like the Hebrew. You say, well, I'm not sure what that means. And so usually the goal of a translator is, hey, put it into the vernacular of the language in the century in which people are using. There are some idioms that we don't use today. We used to use the idiom, sufficient is the evil unto the day thereof. We don't use that. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, today we'd say every day has enough trouble of its own. All right? So uh, in essence, to interpret or to paraphrase the idiom, Jeremiah is saying the people, they appear in public as dejected, they mourn, uh, they, they mourn, they put on black, it's a time of national distress. Then he says, verse 3, their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns, that's where you stored the water, like a big well, and found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads because the ground is cracked. For there has been no rain on the land. The farmers have been put to shame, and they covered their heads. And so, again, black that's used here in the Hebrew Bible and in the King James, it's a symbol of mourning. Mourning over what? Mourning over the famine. There's no water to drink. There's no food to eat. Here's another example. Same prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. You know, Jeremiah, he's a crying prophet. He laments. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. And so in describing this awful day of thirst and lack of bread, he said, our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. I gave it to you right out of the King James. It's a beautiful picture. Again, we don't use that idiom, but again, it is emphasizing the mourning associated with famine. Here's another example, Joel chapter 2, verse 6. In describing starvation and drought, the prophet writes, before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. That's how the NAS puts it. The King James reads more literally to the Hebrew, but an idiom we don't understand today. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. Now, normally, like in the book of Solomon, black is beautiful. But here, it's used as a symbol of heartache, of mourning that comes from famine. Now, even if you didn't read Hebrew... You might put two and two together and say, well, the man who comes on the black horse doesn't bring abundance, he brings famine. And that's obvious here from Revelation 6 and verse 5. Look at your text. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come, I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Very clearly, not by accident, a black horse who follows a red horse because famine invariably follows a time of war. And by the way, as we will see next time, this is the precise order that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. I'm developing a chart. I didn't have it ready yet today. I give it to you next time. But I will show you how the Olivet Discourse found in Luke's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel in Mark's Gospel perfectly parallels what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 6. Jesus speaks of a time of famine, then he speaks of, or he speaks of a time of war, and then he speaks of a time that's followed by famine. Millions will die. The world will be encompassed with war. Not so many will be out farming the fields as they will be in the battlefields. 
and every priority will be given to defending your nation. And of course, with famine comes disease and despair and death. And apparently, the famines will be so severe that food will need to be rationed. And so he speaks here of a pair of scales in the hand. Now, we know nothing about hunger in our day, especially in America. We can go to the grocery store and get whatever we want. Now, certainly my parents at the dinner table when we were young would tell us about what it was like growing up in the Second World War and how they would have uh, coupons where um, they were given so much coffee or so much sugar or so much gasoline. But that wasn't total deprivation. That was just an inconvenience. The shortages of World War II don't even begin to pale to the trouble that's going to come on the planet in this day. Even in America today, if you're not wealthy, most of us have food in our cupboards, and most of us very rarely if ever go hungry. But that's all going to change after the rapture of the church. This is a time marked by shortages. Secondly, this is a time marked by starvation. A time marked by starvation. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The Bible says here this rider is carrying some old-fashioned scales in his hand. And please note precisely what the rider is saying. His judgments are revealed, and we're told in verse 6, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart, some of your translations say a measure, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, the Greek word for measure or a quart represents just enough wheat to be able to make a loaf of bread. And the loaf in the first century was one of these loaves. Not one of these like we make, but one of these. Just these small little loaves. And a denarius represented what the average person in the first century made after working all day long. And so uh, he is telling us here that a denarius, a man's wages for a whole day, will only be able to buy a loaf of wheat bread. Now, I know that the coming black horse of famine is something, again, that we have difficulty in our culture understanding. Most Americans, their idea of sacrifice or skipping something is skipping a bowl of ice cream before they go to bed, right? I mean, we're not, we're not talking about anything too heavy. I mean, I remember when I was a child at the dinner table. You know, you didn't like something on your plate. I don't know. I never did like the cauliflower. And I didn't like the Brussels sprouts, but I, I liked most of the other things. But my parents would say, you need to eat that. You know, there's children in Africa who are starving. And, and I said, look, if the children in Africa were here, they wouldn't eat it either. You know, <laughs> didn't always go over too big. But, but, but we don't know that much about starvation, do we? we? We really don't. But the world will know it. I mean, a person's wage will be able to buy enough food for one person. Now, if you're not working or unable to work, you won't have any food for yourself. And remember, we're talking about a man's wage for one person. Now, the average family size in the Middle East is 7.7 people. The average family size in Africa is 5.3 people. The average family size in America is 2.5 people. And so even here, we will know the pain and suffering. A quart of wheat for a denarius, and then he says, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. 
Now, wheat was the chosen bread. Barley was basically animal food. Unless you were really poor, it's not by accident that the Scripture notes that that boy who brought his five loaves brought five barley loaves. That said a lot about his family. He was very, very poor. In either case, you will have a choice. To put it in modern terminology, your dad, you're at the dinner table. Do you have one loaf that is divided amongst your whole family? Or do you buy three loaves of barley animal food to go amongst your whole family? Or in modern terms, do we buy a box of saltines, say, to split amongst the whole family to feed everyone? Now, this is all going to happen in the first half of the tribulation period. And people are going to have difficult choices to make. And when people get hungry, they will do all kinds of things. When Israel was garrisoned from 67 to 70 AD, surrounded by the Roman army, Titus Vespucian's army, it got so bad the hunger that some of the people began to kill their children and eat them. And if you want to see what it's like to be hunger, we, we haven't had much public press on it in the last week because other events going on. Just look at what's going on in Venezuela. People are killing each other for food because the shelves are empty. That is going to happen. It's going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible time. Time marks by shortages and time marked, as Jesus will show us, by starvation. But third, a time marked by separation. By separation. Look, if you will, now at verse 6. I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and here it is, here's the separation. Do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, it's an interesting little phrase here at the end of verse 6. The oil and the wine are not harmed. Explicit instructions given by God Almighty that the, there would be no damage to the oil and the wine. Now, wheat and barley, they represent necessities. In the first century, oil and wine represented luxuries. It was often found in any rich home. However, the staples of life will be what the majority of the people on the planet will know, but only the wealthy will know the oil and the wine. And I find that very, very interesting because Jesus gives the same disparity as we'll see in the Olivet Discourse. And I think in some respects, this will be a judgment upon the earth. And I'll explain why in a moment. But think about it. Jesus spoke of a time of famine in the Olivet Discourse, but Jesus also spoke about a time of plenty. He said, for instance, in later on in that chapter, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. So two unequal conditions existing at the same time. And so John is giving a prophecy here that there will be great need, but there will be some who have plenty. And I say that's a judgment of God because the rich godly people of our day will all be gone. And the only people left will be the rich, wicked people. And what do you suppose will happen to some of these rich, wicked people? I'll tell you what, the majority will go after them. They will do everything in their power to get what they have. And I think, by the way, some of these early judgments in the seals 
are not by accident because they are setting the stage for the one world government not yet established with the one world economy not yet established. There's a one world order that has already begun to unfold, but the one world economy where you cannot buy or sell anything hasn't yet happened. But think about it, if you're hungry and you want to survive and you want food for your family and you don't love the living God, and because as Paul says, their God is their belly, you'll take the mark of the 666 in order to feed yourself and your family. So what does this prophecy concerning the rider on the black horse tell us? Well, it tells us one, it will be a time of limited productivity, which you can easily understand with war across the planet, but it will also be a time of great economic deprivation. And so this is not the war horse, this is the famine horse, and the two are clearly connected because as night follows day, famine typically follows war, and many will succumb to the allurement of the Antichrist to feed their belly. Now wonder, Jesus said of this time, woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, little babies will nurse it dry breasts, and there'll be hunger across the planet. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me make some suggestions as I close. Number one, these truths should make me more passionate in my witness. These truths should make me more passionate in my witness for Christ. I mean, if this biblical truth cannot grip your heart, I don't know what will. I mean, if you see people today as lost and you realize that the rapture could take place and they could enter into this hard time in human history, would you not care about their soul and their state? In recognizing that the tribulation wrath, as we will see from Revelation chapter 20 and other parallel texts, doesn't even begin to compare with the eternal wrath of God that will follow. But most Christians today are tight-lipped. And we think the solution to America's problem is in the White House. It's not in the White House, it's in the church house. And it's with a mighty army of Christians who will vocalize the gospel. But we are living in the age of a lukewarm church where most Christians today don't even attempt to share their faith. This is a new week with new opportunities we should ask God for those opportunities and for open doors. Secondly, these truths should make me evaluate how I'm living my Christian life. I mean, if you really believe that Jesus could come back today as the Bible teaches and the tribulation period could begin, this unprecedented time in human history, then how should you then live? That's the focus of prophecy. With virtually every prophecy in the New Testament, there's an accompanying command as to how you should live. God didn't give you this prophecy to give you some prophecy chart. He didn't give you these truths to make you a smarter sinner. He gave us these truths to make us more like Jesus Christ. And all the way through this book runs the underlying truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is coming again to rule and to reign in righteousness. And that hope, that guarantee should reflect our lifestyle today. And as John says, everyone who sets his focus on, on this purifies himself as he is pure. Third, these truths should make me flee to Jesus Christ if I've never been saved. As you study the Bible, you discover there are four principal reasons why people do not come to Christ. 
Some hate God, they hate Christ, they hate the Bible. I doubt there's any like that here today or listening to me, unless you just stumbled on the internet channel or on this TV broadcast, or someone drug you here today and you didn't really want to be here. But some hate the light, so they do not come to the light, lest their evil be exposed. Some do not give their lives to Christ because they hate God. Some do not give their lives to Christ because they think they're too good to be saved. They think this message that I preach is for the prostitute, the drunkard, the drug addict, the pimp, the murderer, but it's not for them. They, after all, are a good, upstanding person. But your righteousness, like mine, falls short of the glory of God. Some people, a third group, never get saved because they think they are too bad to be saved. They think they have done such heinous, wicked things that God could never forgive them. God can save anyone, whosoever will may come. It is sheer unbelief over what God has plainly stated that would lead someone to that conclusion. And the fourth reason people don't get saved in the Bible is because they procrastinate. Oh, they want to be saved. They intend to give their life to Jesus, but the devil has tricked them. You've got some life to live. You've got some oats to sow. You've got some sin to enjoy. And they've been deceived that God is ripping them off. That's what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. God's holding out on you. So they procrastinate. And millions and millions of people who intend to get saved, who intend to confess Jesus, who intend to be baptized, who intend to join the church, they procrastinate and they procrastinate and they procrastinate. And one of these days, it will be too late and they will be lost forever. You say, how can God possibly wipe my dirty, filthy record clean? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment we deserve, the Bible says, fell on him. And if you will come to the Lamb, he will forgive you. But if you will ignore him, you will meet him is the lion of the tribe of Judah in all of his fiery wrath. Holy Father, thank you for your word today. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path for those who have eyes to see and wills to respond. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who, who is uncertain where their destiny will be. Help them to realize that you have paid not for some or most, but all of their sin with your own precious blood that you gave of yourself in Christ that we might be forgiven. You proved the sufficiency of his payment when you raised him from the dead, declaring to all men everywhere that he is Lord. So help someone to believe the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Help someone, Father, to believe the gospel which you call is the power of God for salvation. Would you do that? Would you say, wherever you may be, Lord Jesus, save me. And Holy Father, may our lips not be sealed. May we be obedient that as we go, we seek to make converts, disciples of all peoples. Help us in this new week to ask you for open doors of opportunity, for 
circumstances to so be crafted by the Spirit of God that we could reach out to some dear lost soul in some way. Father, when he comes back, we do not want to shrink in shame, but we want to be in the dead center of your will, glorifying the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Lord Jesus, in the Spirit and by your holy name, we come and we thank you. Amen. To listen again to today's look at the Black Horse of Destitution, part of our study in the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV16. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll look at the fourth horse of the apocalypse, the pale horse of devastation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.